Welcome to the What's Up with Docs podcast, the documentary podcast for all of us. I'm Tony Bell, the creator and host. I would like to acknowledge the traditional ancestral unceded territory of the Tongva and the Shumas on which this podcast is being recorded. From the Northwestern University website, I quote, It is important to understand the long-standing history that has brought you to reside on the land and to seek to understand your place within that history. Ernestine DeSoto is a Chumash Native American whose mother, Mary Yi, was a last speaker of a native Barbanyo language. In the film Six Generations, directed by Paul Goldstein, Ernestine's family reaches back to the days the Spanish arrived at Santa Barbara and made first contact. Ernestine tells this history from the perspective of her female ancestors, making her a unique link with the past. The film Six Generations is available for purchase on the Documentary Educational Resources website. In this episode, I speak with the award-winning film curator, film festival director, and broadcaster Claire Aguilar. In our conversation, we speak about her experience of being one of the first Filipina and Asian American television commissioning editors, her recent work with the American film Showcase Pakistan, and the desperate need for accountability in the documentary field. Because when we first began working together, we always seemed to run into each other in the restroom. This week's song is Climax's R&B classic, Meeting in the Ladies' Room. Here's our conversation, which was recorded in June 2020. Um, each episode has a theme song. And for our episode, or for your episode, rather, I picked Meeting in the Ladies' Room. Because when we first started working together, it seemed like we were always running into each other in the bathroom. And then we started singing this song, like kind of spontaneously together. I think we had some kind of synchronicity with our wee-wee breaks. I know. <laughs> we, we always seem to want to go to the bathroom at the same, same time. Same time, like coming to go in, like, like ships passing in the night. You have had like an amazing career in documentary. Um, I wanted to ask you about a few other things. So you are an actress. I acted in one film. Well, you are an actress, and that that film was by Nina Menkes, Magdalena Varaga. So what was your role in that? Um, that was a film by Nina Menkes, who is an, um, a feminist experimental filmmaker. Um, and it was her, I think it was her second feature. And she, um, we met at UCLA at the film school there. And um, in the film, I play um, the friend of the um, main character, and we're both prostitutes. And um, I'm her confidant, and uh, my name is Claire, like my real name. Um, and it was a great experience. It was, um, it was, it's a very, it's a feminist film about basically just independence and brutality mm -hmm. and, you know, women who are trying to just escape from their identities being carved out by men. Mm. Um, we had really great locations. We, we, we filmed at the Sybil Brand Institute for Women, which is a, a women's prison um, kind of near East LA. Yeah, it was kind of like, how did you get access to that? Now that I know about filmmaking, I thought, <laughs> I don't know, like Nina, she could do anything, you know, she got it to Civil Brand, which was, it's like Fort Knox, so this was like, I think 1986. You used to be a chef. 
Yeah, I did that too. Okay. I've been around, Tony. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> well, well, t- tell us more about that. And then I also want to ask, when you plan to like cook us some dinner and, and we'll buy the ingredients. I used to live in France. I went to school in France. And then, um, so what I, when I came back, I went to UCLA. I was in graduate school and I needed a job for the summer. So my friend Larry and I, why don't we apply to this French restaurant that just opened? It was in Westwood. It was called the Regency Club. It was like this private restaurant. And, um, and I, I had never worked in a restaurant before. And then I, <laughs> I sort of showed up. And the thing is that um, I didn't know anything about cooking, but I thought it'd be cool. Larry applied as a waiter and he got the job because he had done waiting before. But basically, I didn't, I didn't know anything about cooking. And the first thing they asked me is like, where are your knives? And I was <laughs> like, mm, my knives, it's like, I think they're at home. It's like, okay, they knew exactly like, oh, she doesn't know what she's doing. But, but I spoke French and they had imported all these French chefs from France to be their chefs. And I could translate between the French chefs because they didn't speak English and their their staff, the, the you know the the dishwashers, the they call them commis, which is what I was, which are the preppers, you know, the prep chefs. And so basically, they hired me, and I didn't know what I was doing, and I learned on the job, and I learned how to cook vegetables and cut things, and it was a great experience. And I worked with a guy named Joachim Splical, who um, opened a restaurant called Patina, and now there are Patinas all over LA and. He was an artist and he was a great inspiration to me. And at one point I thought, well, am I, can I just be a chef, you know, because I was one of two women in the kitchen and it was a very sexist, horrible environment. It, it still is, but now there are women chefs. And, and then it was just me and Melanie and guys were always trying to, you know, pick up on us and rub against us and say demeaning things to us. So every day we would go in the, walk in the refrigerator and cry. Oh my goodness. Awful. But on the other hand, I learned how to cook. So <laughs> next time I see you and Rennell, we'll, we'll, we'll cook something. Awesome. Awesome. Get some Frenchy French food. So you s- said you went to school in France. Was that, was that after UCLA? No, it was before UCLA. I went on a education abroad program to Paris and I was, um, I was the senior. Usually you go as a junior. I went as a senior because I just did it late. And it was a uh, film studies program in France. It was like semiotics, it was totally above my head. I didn't know what we were doing, but we got to watch movies all day because that's what we did. And in, in, in Paris, it's like you can see movies all day. They actually had, I don't know if they, this is, is happening now, but they had cinemas that just would show like John Wayne films like 24 seven. And it was like there I saw films by, you know, everybody from Ben Benders to Chantal Ackerman to even like Busby Berkeley musicals and Westerns, which I'd never seen before, and Filipino films, which I'd never seen before either. Wow. And you're, you're Filipina. I am. And I'd never seen a Filipino film before. So it was a great film education. And I was studying semiotics and watching movies. And I did that for a while. So how did you, because I know you're fluent in French. So do you, do, or do you just have a natural gift for like picking up languages or? Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, I, I, 
I studied French, you know, I studied French literature a lot because I did pretty well in it, you know, but studying French literature is not the same as going to a market and asking for, you know, I want a kilo of oranges. And it's not the same when people, you know, you say something really dorky, like, you know, where is the Champs-Élysées? And then people will respond to you. It's like, oh, mais c'est jusqu'à là, c'est au, au coin de la rue. And it's like, <laughs> what did they say? <laughs> like, <That's> slow down. <laughs> but when you live in a country, you, you, in, especially when you're young, I think it's easier to pick up on a language, you know. But I still speak French with my friends and I think I can get by. So it's, it's a good tool to have. I mean, that's awesome. You've retained it. Cause like, I'm, I'm the type of person, like I have to be, my brain has to be forced to speak the language. Um, so I, when I was in college, I went to Morocco my senior year. Oh, cool. Yeah. And I learned, um, and I'd taken French, but I was just not comfortable speaking it. And when I got there, I thought, okay, I'll, I'll, you know, get better with my French. Cause you know, it's, it's colonized by the French. But I ended up speaking Arabic because I was doing this independent study on the, the worship practices of rural Muslim women. And, um, and French was looked at as the language of the colonizers. The colonizers, yeah. Yeah, so the areas I was going into, they were either speaking um, Arabic or they were like the indigenous folks there who were Berber. So my Arabic got really, really um, good. And by the time I, I, was, I was staying there for about five months, and then um, by the time I got back to the States, it was really hard for me to get back to speaking English. But luckily, I was since I was hearing French, my French was improved because I had one more French class to take for, for to graduate. And I was really worried. But I think because I was hearing it so much, um, I my language skills just improved. So I, I found my, uh, yeah, it was like really amazing. So you can get some of it by osmosis. But um, you can, you know, I mean, when I was in France, what the advantage for me was that I, I'm Asian, you know, and at that point, like, it was very anti-American, the sentiment in France, you know, and there were a lot of ugly Americans in France, like, who would just kind of bulldoze their way in Paris, and, but since I was Asian, they didn't, they never thought I was American, they actually thought that I was, they actually thought I was Cambodian because you know i'm southeast asian looking and they would say to me like oh you poor thing like it's terrible what we've done to your country not only the french but the americans and i would say no i'm not i'm filipino and it, that wouldn't mean anything to them you know they would insist <laughs> i was cambodian but it helped me because since i didn't identify as american they like they treated me better i was kind of like you know, I was the colony to them still, you know, because I was Cambodia, but it was just like, I wasn't an ugly American, so it was good. Right. Yeah, I, I found that to be really true when I've, when I've traveled um, internationally as well, um, because there seems to be more, um, well, I think in general, like I, like a lot, I think a lot, a lot of Black folks, I feel safer overseas than I do yeah. here um, in the United States, but um, there is this sense that okay we're we're american but there's this exception because of the experiences we've had you know as folks of color in the country so how did you get into docs uh, well i've always been involved in film you know i mean i went to film school and i had a great epiphany like um my first film appreciation class which was at ucla was films from World War II to the present. It was taught by the great Robert Rosen, who then became a dean of um, the 
the film school. I was always involved in film and my first job was a curator at UCLA at the Film Archive. So one of the one of the things they they had was a it was it was the academy had a program of uh, Oscar nominated documentaries, and we would present that at UCLA like all the Oscar nominated and Oscar winning documentaries for that year, and we did that in partnership with the academy. So th that was the first exposure I really had to docs that were not you know on PBS or you know classics you know like Hearts and Minds and. Um, and it was a great opportunity to meet filmmakers too. You know, like I think my first, I think I met um, um, Renee Tajima Pena and Christine Choi, who made the um, the film who, who Killed Vincent Chin, which was one of the first films about, you know, people of color and hate crimes. So that was my first exposure to docs. And then when I started, when I started working at PBS, I worked at KCT, which was the PBS affiliate in LA. I saw all the docs there, but everything from PBS docs to what we now call nonfiction films, you know, so travel and, you know, not reality programming, but that kind of nonfiction programming. <laughs> but before reality, before reality TV. Yeah. Before non-reality TV. Yeah, yeah. Reality oh, BC. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, I, did, I just wanted to um, like just backtrack a, a teeny bit. You should go visit the website for the Asian American Museum because um, Renee is going to be on a panel about the film um, Vincent Chen. She's going to be talking about that. Yeah. And uh, it's going to be moderated by Paula Madison. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah. And, and, and she was also involved in that new series on the Asian Americans that just premiered on PBS. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. The Asian Americans. Yes. So please, please watch that on all your PBS affiliates. It is amazing. And I think it's a triumph. Like, I feel like this is like the Asian American version of like Eyes on the Prize that really celebrates the heritage of Asian folks here in, in this country. And it's truly a celebration. And um, yeah, so please, please, please watch that. But I wanted to go back to your time when you were working at the UCLA um, Film and Television Archives, because you know, I got into docs via archival research. And um, and Renelle mentioned this. And I was like, oh my gosh, because we never really talked about your work at the archives. So what were some of your um, like most amazing finds when you were working there? Um, well, I worked as a curator and not an archivist, but I was I was in touch with, um, I mean, basically I worked with the archivists who are such an interesting, I mean, these were, these were the most interesting people I, I'd ever met in my life, you know. They were a little bit like monks working on illuminated manuscripts, but, um, and it ranged from everything from the collection at UCLA was amazing. It still is amazing. It was it was everything from um, Hollywood films from all the major studios, and this was like silent film and nitrate film and pre Hayes Code film, as well as up to the present to like Paramount Studios, the films of the '70s and the '80s and the '90s. But they also had a newsreel from the Hearst collection that they used to license, they licensed it out. And they were also real leaders in restoration. Um, so they restored a lot of beautiful color films like Becky Sharp and um, just beautiful, uh, they did an Abel Gantz uh, film 
on the revolution they restored. Anyway, they did a lot of work in all those areas, but I did the curation for the exhibition, but I was in touch with all the archivists and it was just amazing. I mean, the, the thing, it's not an archival find, but the thing that was really amazing to me was working with nitrate film, which I had no idea about. Um, the archive, and maybe it's on YouTube, I hope they, they had this demo of like what happens with our, our nitrate film, which is the film they use, right? It was silver nitrate and, and basically it's so flammable that all you have to do is cough and it'll self-combust. And they had those firemen that like had this rule of reel of nitrate film and it like almost self-combusted. And then he tries putting it in, this, in a bucket of sand and then he takes it out and it self-combusts again. And then he puts it in water and it, self it, it, it basically doesn't go out. So we're sitting on like 4 million tons of this film at the archive. And it's all in like, you know, climatized vaults and, you know, and just, but, but being around it and then experiencing it, like seeing it projected. And I think you can still see it projected at the Academy and at, at UCLA, of course. It is the most beautiful thing. And it really makes you think, wow, cinema really is magic, you know, because it has this luminous, um, it's basically all these little silver particles that are reflecting on light. And it's kind of like, wow, you know, and, and, and there are documentaries that are made on nitrate too, and they're all so beautiful. So, I mean, I really encourage anybody, you know, especially now in our post-corona or post 21st century era to try to see, um, you know, nitrate film if you can in your lifetime before it goes away and it all goes digital because it, it really is a beautiful experience. Yeah. So um, you grew up in LA, right? Yeah, mostly. I was born in New Jersey, but I grew up mostly in Southern California. I'm from Wilmington, which is um, about 30 minutes away from LA. It's in the, the harbor. Um, I was busted to school in San Pedro. Yeah, I'm pretty much Southern Californian. Was, just, was anybody in your family interested in film? No, but I went to the movies a lot with my mom. I mean, we would, I mean, we even saw like films like we saw Last Tango in Paris together, which was like, oh, no, I really? Yes. I mean, <laughs> it was like, you know, it was X rated, but she got me in. But she had very, um, she had very wide ranging taste. So, I mean, we even saw, I think we saw The Godfather together or, we saw all these. We saw all these movies together, and she loved old movies too. She loved watching like Cary Grant movies, and and so we would spend a lot of time watching movies together. Not really documentaries, but um, and she was she was into music and the arts, and so that was good. But you know, they for the longest time they never understood what I did or what I studied, and it was like <laughs> you know, it's something to do with film, you know, something to do with film. But then when I started working in public television, that was more tenable. It was like, oh, oh yeah, KCT, yeah, that meant a lot to them. They understood that. Yeah. So did they try to pressure you to quote unquote get a real job? You know, no. They were my parents were really awesome that way. You know, they just wanted me to be happy, and they never said, oh, you have to be an engineer or a doctor. And and I went to school for a long time, and I really, you know, and they supported me through all that. I mean, I went through a long time of going, being graduate school. So, you know, it was a little like, I'm really fortunate to have parents that didn't, you know, they weren't the typical Asian, you know, like, oh, my God, you have to get a job and make money. And, 
and and they weren't even pressuring me to get married or anything, which was awesome. It just okay. Just, <laughs> they just let you be. Yeah, just be who you want to be. I'm the youngest of three kids, and I'm 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 very young. I've big 10, 12 difference of age between my brother and sister. So I was spoiled. I'm my father's only um, daughter. So I was just, I'm the only, only child for my mother and father. So I was spoiled to a large extent. Time, well, first of all, I was going to go into your time at ITVS, but also um, if you could define uh, for our audience, what exactly is a commissioning editor? At ITVS, I was um, basically um, director of programming, and then I became a vice president of programming, and that was overseeing all of their funding initiatives because they were a funder for public television. And um, in the course of that work, which was mostly working with American producers, I, we, we got this fund from um, a different foundations to do an international fund, and that would be the fund international producers of documentary, and then distribute their films on public television. So we would license the rights, but we got, we got a sizable amount of money to be able to pay for finishing costs for documentaries made by international producers. And so I, I had to do research of how to find these international producers, so I started going on this circuit, which is familiar now, the markets and the festivals. And the way it works mostly in Europe is that the, these documentaries were commissioned by these um, broadcasters. And so there was this role that emerged called the commissioning editor. And basically they were broadcasters or funders who funded mostly international producers and mostly documentary. Um, and it's just, it's become it's become a little changed now because of the funding model. Yeah, like what what changes have because you've been in the field for for a while now. So what what are the differences that you've noticed like from when you first started to now? Well, there was um there weren't any online streaming platforms at that time. You know, we're talking about like the, you know, basically 2005 or something, you know, like 15 years ago. Like the big people at the table, like my first market was actually in Amsterdam. And so Amsterdam, the forum, IDFA, which is the documentary festival in Amsterdam, they have the, like the biggest forum of market for documentaries. And it was there that I, I met people um, who were commissioning editors. And the, the U.S. partners at the table, the real heavy hitters, I remember HBO was there, Lisa Heller and Nancy Abraham, they were, who are now the heads of documentary at HBO, they were at the table. And there was also someone from the Sundance channel. I think, um, I don't, I think maybe somebody from National Geographic. So they're basically cable and there wasn't anybody from PBS at that point. So cable kind of dominated because PBS didn't become a funder until later. They, they were really just distributor or presenter. And so now cable is not the kind of main player the way the platforms are now. I mean, they're still really, HBO has a great slate and they, they fund pretty healthily, but um, you know, now it's Netflix and Amazon and they just produce things and commission in a different way. You know, you don't really see them at the pitching forums as much, you know, as others. On the other hand, some of the European broadcasters are still doing the same model. You know, they're doing pre-sales and 
their money isn't that much, but on the other hand, they give a lot of support to the filmmakers and they, they do well. They broadcast it on their channels and they, they air them in great primetime slots and it's, it does very well. So that hasn't changed as much, but a lot of the players have, have shifted. Yeah, a lot of filmmakers who I've talked to, um, especially newer filmmakers, are really, they want to know how to like connect with the Netflixes and the Amazons and the Hulus. And, um, and really, I, the advice I kind of give them is like, uh, well, number one, you have to have an agent. And, and really, they, those um, companies are in the position of just trying to, they want to win awards at this point. So they're getting their content from, from films that do well at the festivals. But I mean, I do know that when I was living in Florida and um, many years ago when Netflix was not streaming and you had to get the wait for the little red envelopes, that was where I um, really got the opportunity to watch a lot of documentaries that were not getting to Tampa. So in many ways, I feel like um, Netflix in the early days was really um, instrumental in addition to PBS to my uh, understanding and knowledge around documentaries before I even got in into the field. But that seems to definitely have um, changed or, or shifted. So I wanted to ask you because um, you, um, your career has been um, vast and I imagine that you have been the only um, woman of color or Asian American in some of these rooms that you've worked in. Oh yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so I wanted to ask, um, particularly in light of things that are happening now, like, how did you make it? <laughs> how, how did you survive? Like, where did you get your support? Um, and maybe, like, maybe start with some of the things you had to go through if you want to, that's not too traumatic. But yeah, because, like, there are very few women of, of color in this field, like, at at your level. Yeah, it's a tough, it's a, it, it's a, it was a tough climb. If it's a climb, I don't think it's a climb. It's more about, well, I, I'm an, I'm a product of affirmative action. I have to say that because without affirmative action, which is, which was a system that ha they had in education to be able to level the, the playing field. Um, you know, I got into college at UCLA kind of through um, an advocate. I had a counselor and um, my grades were horrible you know because I was ditching classes a lot I was just doing what you do you know and I and um I didn't really think about college until I had my advocate say no you really have to go to college and because my SETs were sort of okay she got me into UCLA but I couldn't have gotten it until you know unless I, she had helped me and there was an affirmative action program in place and an ELP program and um, and when I got to college, I felt very isolated. I went to UCLA. They had like 33,000 students and just a bunch of faculty. It's a huge campus. Was there any kind of like um, Asian American um, group? Yeah, there was Asian American studies and it was a pretty good program, but I didn't really get involved in that. I, I didn't feel like I, my identity wasn't even cemented. I had no idea of who I was really. It was until I moved out of the country that I said, you know, I'm an Asian American, I'm a Philippine American, because I just had no idea. And then when I came back to the US, then I felt like more supported. And then I started working with a lot of groups that were um, doing um, Asian American media, and also um, black media. 
And then when I worked at PBS, there was the, what, what is now the Minority Consortia, the National, um, they have a different name now, NMC, the National Media, the National Minority Coalition or something. And basically the five groups of minority uh, groups that help producers of color to bring their films to public TV. And so it was very involved with um, what was then called NATA, now it's called CAM, the Center for Asian American Media, yeah, Latino Public Broadcasting, and they all had different names in the day. So they used to be called NLCC. And that was kind of my awakening. And also they were there to support professionals of color. But I have to tell you, I mean, UCLA was different because it was diverse. It was an academic environment. And also they had the crazy archivists and everything, a lot of artists and a lot of people of color and international people. But when I went to to KCET, it was it was so white and so male. And um, I remember, I, I think I met my first um, Republican that I worked with. I mean, I never thought that I would work with a Republican. <laughs> It was, this, it was this really nice lady, and I can't remember her name, but basically we were both at the Xerox machine, and she, she told me that she was a Republican, and I was kind of shocked. I was like, wow, it's like there are Republicans that work here? I was so used to working in academia, you know? And also the whole PBS scene. I think um, there were, there were African-American programmers of color, and there was the consortia, you know, the MBPC. There was Mabel Haddock, you know, who was, is, uh, she was awesome. She was the head of MBPC. There were some African-American programmers. But I think I was the only Asian. I think there were a couple of Latino programmers. There was a woman in San Antonio. But I think I was the only Asian-American programmer um, there. And um, I just remember walking into my first PBS meeting and... Um, there was a nature series called The Land of the Eagle. And I thought, oh, it's about eagles. It's about nature. But it was a super patriotic thing with flags, eagles, and on big screens. And I was like, what is in a full of suits with white men in them? And I was like, I can't believe this world. This is like, and it's very intimidating, you know. It's just like, but then as, as time went on, it's, it's changed now. We still have a lot of work to do, but it's changed now you get affinities, you know, with these groups, like the National Minority Consortia and, and people like, um, I remember Orlando Bagwell when he made um, his films, you know, I mean, and I think he gave a keynote and he talked about, you know, his struggle. And it was so inspirational that, you know, even the white men in the suits, they just had to stop and say, you know, this, this man, this is important work, and this, this person is special, and, you know, his charisma basically gave him that opportunity, but it opened doors for people to be able to say, you know, it's not a, only Orlando, there are lots of people of color who are talented, who have to share their work with people. I wanted to go into uh, some of your recent work um, with the American Film Showcase, because um, pre-COVID, uh, Miss Claire was all out and about in Pakistan, like on every, I think, well, I don't know how many media outlets are in Pakistan, but she was posting like videos of herself, like all these television stations in Pakistan. So I, I was thinking like, oh my God, Claire's a celebrity over there. So what were you doing? I know, it was like crazy, huh? Um, yeah, you did, a, you did a lot of press. I mean, 
I think I did like five morning shows, you know, and that was just the tip of the iceberg. They have like morning shows everywhere. What is it called? Like today or something. Like today, yeah. Or good morning, good morning, Pakistan. Yeah, good morning, Pakistan. I even did a promo like in Urdu, which, you know, they helped me rehearse, like welcome to Pakistan. Yeah, so it's, it's really fun. So basically the American Film Showcase is a, it's a, it's a kind of global media uh, diplomacy project that the Department of State, the U.S. Department of State funds, and it brings Americans who are involved in film or filmmakers to other countries and working with the consulates, the U.S. consulates of those countries who basically show American films and talk about filmmaking or give workshops about filmmaking to, that, to those countries to either students or the general audience. And, um, and I was able to go to Pakistan and this was like right before COVID hit. So yeah, cause you got back and then we had our last supper. It was you, me, Rennell and, um, the Canadian producer, Ina Fishman. Yang Chow. That was our last supper. That was our last supper before Ina escaped to the great north, the same north of Canada. Exactly. Exactly. I remember, well, it wasn't too long ago, but it feels like forever. It does. (laughs) Yeah. So I just returned and it was just hitting there. So um, we basically were fine, but it was a, it was a three city tour of Karachi, Lahore and Islamabad. Um, and um, I had always dreamt of going to Pakistan. I've gone to India a bunch of times, and I just am very curious about Pakistan, and especially because I was there to talk about women's empowerment and and the representation of women in the media. And I just thought, on the other hand, I do know a lot of there are a lot of Pakistani women filmmakers, especially in documentaries that I know, you know, including. Um, Sinan Keshki, who is um, lives in the U.S., and um, Sabina Samar, who lives in Pakistan. There, there are a lot of them. So I was just curious to see, like, what would the scene be like there. Um, so it was a great opportunity. The, the The consulate there was very active. They have a huge staff. They have like 200 people in Islamabad or something. Or, really? Yeah. Okay. Like crazy. Um, and, and Pakistan is a very strategic um, area for the U.S. So I had to get go through a lot of preparation, you know, like um, don't talk about politics or don't talk about Israel, don't talk about India. Um, okay. You know, um, on the other hand, it was the most hospitable place I've ever been. You know, I think the Philippines is very hospitable, but, you know, I'm Filipino, so I don't know. I might be biased. Pakistan, it's amazing, you know, and, you know, if you know about Pakistan, it's like, you know, there was a, there was a partition that happened between India and Pakistan. And so Pakistan is a, it's a, it's pretty much 100% Muslim country. It's a patriarchal society. Um, I've never been surrounded by so many dudes in my life, you know, it was like, there were so many men there. And I was the only woman. But on the other hand, I was meeting lots of young women, a lot of students. And um, they had a lot of energy. They were very creative. So I just want to ask, what kind of stuff are they, what are they working on? Mostly they're working on fiction. So a lot of them, a lot of them are working on, um, you know, on dramatic films because not a lot are working on documentary, but there are some that are working on documentary, but they have no, they have no tools, you know. They have like two film schools. Um, they don't like 
they they had a lot of people were showing me a lot of material and it looked good but on the other hand they had no sense of story you know so it didn't have a lot of exposure to like storytelling in documentary or in fiction they knew hollywood films of course you know but um they didn't know that you can extend that to documentary and tell a story with documentary with characters and so on so a lot of them were you know like nature programs or more observational kind of um or reportage kind of guy so do they not get a lot of um films from bollywood they do but they don't like them you know they're so formulaic and they don't want to emulate a bollywood film although you know there's some great bollywood films of course but you know they'd rather you know do something like in drama like something like I don't know, like a Spike Lee film, you know, or okay, yeah, all they're right. really into Black Klansmen or Roma or you know, okay, cool. Or I show I showed them a clip from Little Women from the Greta Gerwig film, you know, which personally I don't really I don't really care for, but they love that film. It's like okay, okay, you know, they're not OD'd on Timothy Chalamet yet, so I I really enjoy being there. And the thing is, they have a lot of media there, as you see. I mean, just a lot. Yeah, it's like I was looking <laughs> at interviews everywhere and I was like, wow, you know, and the reach. I mean, some of those morning shows were reaching like, you know, millions of households and some were local, some were national. Um, and they were all really professional and I really enjoyed doing all that media. So um, we just did a Zoom um, like webinar with with some of the Pakistani filmmakers. Oh, great! Yeah. So, how was that, and how are they doing with everything? Well, it's weird, you know, because it's weird doing it on Zoom to have like yeah, it is, you know. But on the other hand, um, we did a we did a pitching workshop, you know, which is like how to pitch, and I think it was useful for them. So the consulate is very eager to do this kind of training for filmmakers. So um, I think they're going to try to do some more stuff and we'll actually have a real pitching workshop with actual projects and, you know, select them and, and we'll have them, you know, just do it because they don't have a lot of experience like going up in front of people and pitching them. Yeah. And wherever you are, you have to practice that. You know, you have to, re you have to rehearse. I mean, it's a performance, as you know, you know, and, and they don't see it that way or, you know, or they think it's just, you know, how do you translate it to a dramatic pitch? And that I don't have expertise on, but on the other hand, you can try to rehearse the same way you do for a documentary pitch. Right, exactly. So um, are there, were there any projects that stood out for you? Well, there's one and I'm actually working on it now. And it's a project um, by Sabia Sumar. And she did a film called uh, Dinner with the President in which, um, when it came out quite a while ago and it was at, it premiered at Sundance and it's about having dinner with Musharraf. She got to have a dinner party with actual Musharraf and she confronts him and talks about everything from the dictatorship to um, his personal life. And this was before he was exiled. So I think it was like 12 or 13 years ago, the film came out. So her new project is about water and the, the basically in that area of India, Pakistan, China, water comes from the Himalayas, from Tibet, has of the mountains. And it, it's basically the water source for that whole area. It runs into all the rivers 
And as you know, water is becoming the biggest commodity. It's, it's more valuable than oil right now. So it's, it's about the way the water is being controlled and distributed. And right now there's a struggle between China and India for these water rights in this whole region. And what, what's the name of it? It's called The Power of Water. So she's in development right now and very excited and I'm helping her a little bit with that. So just overall, what kind of um, support do um, documentary filmmakers in Pakistan need? They need a lot of support, you know, but on the other hand, you know, they, they don't have any like federal support. They don't, you know, I mean, there are some, what I tried to do is share resources of where they can get funding support. Like there's some organizations that fund international um, filmmakers, you know, like the Sundance Talk Fund and um, Catapult, Chicken and Egg. Um, so, you know, just to tell them about the, those resources help a lot. And also, but they need like technical workshops, like they need like a camera workshop or an editing workshop as long as well as the story the the story uh kind of training there there's some art schools there there's one art school in um it's in karachi that and they do a they actually do a exchange with the university of texas at austin with their film school there's some connections that are sort of finalizing but and they don't have a ministry of the arts or anything so a lot of it comes from commercial um one of the one of the coordinators of the program is, um, it's a company called, um, I forgot the name of the company, but anyway, they have an offshoot nonprofit and they coordinate all the technical things. So all my, all my, my press junkets and all that were coordinated by this nonprofit. It's called Just for Peace. But basically they're a production company that came up with an animated series that they call mm -hmm. um, the Burka, what is it called? The Burka Warrior. Anyway, it's this animated um, superhero woman who wears a burqa, and she's like a burqa ninja. So they, they, they so you can, you can actually see this. You can go on YouTube and see it. And now they're making a feature. So they want to make like a, a feature that'll be distributed worldwide. But it was a very successful like TV show, and it, it won a Peabody Award and everything, the TV show. And so, so they're kind of trying to do the. But the transition from like animated document, animated um, whatever webisodes to feature, and then eventually the documentary. So they're kind of a good role model as a production company because they're they've been very successful. And the guy who founded it is actually a pop singer, and his name is Haroon. So he became pop singer, and then he put all his like investment into this company to be able to make the Burka Warrior um, series. So there's a lot of like, you know, every, every producer I met actually was either an entertainer or an actor in their past life. So you'd have these like glam women who's saying, I'm making a documentary on, you know, on abortion. <laughs> okay. I used to be an actress. I think one of the things that they, they would tell me in Pakistan was that, um, they, they didn't really like the way that Pakistan is being portrayed in the West. You know, it's either they're either terrorists or they're jihadists or, you know, they're um, these crazy fanatical religious people. Um, 
you know, and then you go there and they're the most hospitable people. And there are some religious people, but it's not like everybody is religious. What you see, you know, about Pakistan is usually about that kind of thing. And, and I have to, you know, I used to live in England in the north of England, and there was a big Pakistani British population there. But I still, I, I feel like I was fed those kind of media images of, um, you know, of Pakistan being this very, you know, kind of crazy country that's full of religious fanatics and that. So I think the filmmakers want to change that and tell the stories that really talk about what the real experience of Pakistan is like. Well, Pakistan, they're ahead of us um, in that they've had, what, two? They have more, like, two or three female um, prime ministers. So, and and we have yet to make that happen. Yeah. Yeah, and there are actually a lot of there are a lot of females in the government, you know, and and they're and they're very powerful, and it is a patriarchal society. But on the other hand, there's there's a lot of progress to be made, especially from the young the young women I met were all really like amazing, and they're just like you know, and plus they they have the best clothes there in Pakistan. They have the most amazing textiles. I mean, in India too, right? But India is all about color. There, it's all about texture glittery things and sequins and you know and I would think about it and say you know I would never wear this in LA but it's really beautiful but I, I kind of stopped short. Um, how is the food? Oh the food is awesome it's very meat heavy though because they mm -hmm. eat a lot of meat so okay. um, mm -hmm. there's a lot of meat but it's it's very spicy and it's really awesome my favorite thing to eat is um, you know they're called paratha they're these stuffed breads that are kind of griddled and they're stuffed with like potatoes and cauliflower and chili and mm, really good. Yeah, that's really good. You know, with everything that's been happening with um, COVID and the protests, um, there's been particularly like the, with the focus on Black Lives Matter, there has been a lot of, well, a lot of predominantly white organizations are expressing their solidarity with Black folks. And in light of that, I think a lot of Black folks, as well as like other people of color, are being kind of offered new opportunities and new positions in order to at least give the appearance of, mm -hmm. of equity and inclusion. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that and what's happening. I mean, I'm not aware of these opportunities that these white organizations are giving, you know, that's other than lip service or solidarity, you know. I'd love to know if you can tell me. I, I'm not aware of any really concrete ones. Well, I'm on this um, Facebook group called, um, it's like called Nonprofit Unicorns. <laughs> and it's for those of us who work in nonprofits, of people of color who work in nonprofits. Everything from like, you know, um, being asked to draft a statement or review a statement to um, like the creation of like diversity and inclusion positions. It's like almost like black folks are like really, really like hyper visible now. And which is like odd and weird because a lot of us have been doing the work of equity and inclusion anyway, in spite of <laughs> like working in these predominantly white organizations, which in many ways still perpetuate um, white, white supremacy. So um, just because you've been in, in this field for so long, I just want to get your, your thoughts about 
that, but also like if any advice on how to, to navigate that. I mean, I do feel like this moment is kind of unprecedented, but it's like a moment of like a, a moment of many moments. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the whole, the whole Corona thing. And then with Black Lives Matter, it's like these two kind of defining moments where hopefully things are going to, they're going to, this is just change. You know, this is where things are not going to be the way they've been. Um, I have to say like, you know, my, my primary love, my primarily, I love programming and to see all this black programming being highlighted and being curated and being made available to everybody. And to have somebody say, say, oh, have you ever seen 13? I just streamed that. I mean, it came out like, what is it, like two years ago? Yeah, of course I've seen it. But, you know, these are people that never seen that or they've never, you know. And also, it's just like with Corona, it's like things will never be the same again. All the projects that I look at now, the ones that are the documentaries they're making, they're all kind of shaped on what just happened, you know, early this year. So it's never going to be the same. And I hope that's the same with Black Lives Matter. But in terms of the organizations, I think that I think the organizations need to be bolder in their approach of just, you know, it's great just to, to form a, you know, a solidarity statement and to support. And that's really important. But it's more important to like to walk the walk, you know, like to, to hire people of color, to hire black people to like talk about like, well, how is your internalized racism? Or how your how are your microaggressions really? And and that's a level where a lot of organizations, especially white organizations, they don't want to go there unless they're scared or it's just too much work or it's financially hard, you know. Or they want to hold on to that power. Yeah, and that's something that you know is is just apparent. You know, it's just gonna it's a reality. So maybe this is the time to just um, keep doing the work, but on the other hand really exerting pressure on those organizations to do more than come up with a statement of solidarity to like, well, what can you really do to both analyze what the role is of these organizations and also to, to correct the wrong, you know, how do organizations make reparations on this matter and also take responsibility for it as opposed to, yes, we stand with the black filmmakers. It's sort of like, well, what are you, what are you doing? You know, how do you account for what you're doing? Because they have a stake in this equally as much as the people of color and the black filmmakers. I mean, if it's not for the, the filmmakers, I would always say this at IDA, like we're nothing without you. Yeah, we're a vessel, you know, we're not, you know, we're not, but it, you, know, you are what it is. You know, we might have the gatekeeper decisions, but on the other hand, you're going to be determining what is going to go out there ultimately i mean it's great you brought up the gatekeeping because like in my in my day job i am a gatekeeper i it's a small gate but i do keep it and i am very very just because i think this is how i was raised um i am very very conscientious when i'm reading proposals uh about um in regards to what is really acceptable and I posted on Facebook this week because I was I was catching up on proposals and I received yet another proposal from a white filmmaker who was focusing on um, a Native American, um, uh, doing a film about Native Americans and who said, first off, that um, there are never, there's never been a documentary done about <laughs> Native Americans, ever, ever. 
And um, to, they basically, they didn't know, they wrote this that they did not know that Native Americans existed until they read, still existed until they read a book in 2015. It is, and I've noticed this particularly with projects about Native Americans that it feels like indigenous folks in this country are so in, in, like vastly invisibilized it, when it comes to some white filmmakers. And it's I'm, like, I read this and I think about, okay, you know, Google is your friend. Okay, you know, email, Google Native American documentary. I guarantee you a lot will come up. Google Native American documentary filmmaker, a lot will come up, you know, um, but it seems like there's this, this, um, it's really, it's a, I feel like it's a narcissistic view that just because I just discovered something that the whole world doesn't know about it. And no, like the world knows you, you're just late. What, as they, what's that song from Black Eyed Peas, 2000 and late? Well, just back to what you were saying about like the 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 person who wrote the proposal is like you know the first time like discovering Native Americans. It's just like Columbus discovering Native Americans. Yes, because, it's so offensive. You know? um, yeah, it is, and it's like, but it's kind of like the first step of being woke. You know, it's sort of like, oh my God, you know. Well, at least there's that. You know, because before it was like they weren't even there before they got discovered by this person, right? You know, for me, it's been really important to keep diversity front and center. And it's been, uh, you know, I found that it's, it's, it's not enough just to, just to say that, oh, I support diversity or, you know, you have to um, operationalize it. And, and it, it might be read in a way like bean counting or, you know, like, um, like in Britain, they have um, the BFI has put in place these measurements for what they call BAME, which are basically filmmakers of color, people of color. They have different categorizations. Um, for those who don't know, um, BFI is the British Film Institute. So, and they're the major funding arm for like films um, in, in the, the UK. Narrative and documentary. Yeah. And there are not that many, so, but they did put in this place where you have to like have like at least a certain percentage of BAME minority crew and principles, you know, creative principles and producing principles. And they just sort of operationalized that. So, and I think they're talking about trying to do that with the Academy, but here in the, I mean, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, although they're not there yet. But the thing is that once the BFI operationalized it, it's sort of like, well, there's no going back. You got to do it whether you like it or not. It's not like your your heart's in it. And you know, when I was at ITVS, we um, we had a board that was really active, and there were a lot of people of color on that board, and they basically made sure, like in the um, in the bylaws and you know in the mission statement, the diversity was front and center. And I'm, I mean, I'm using diversity; it's kind of an old term now, but it was yeah, center like the inclusion mission. now, right, inclusion. right. <laughs> but at that time, it really meant because this was there was about it was a lens about color, and it was a lens through color and race, and you know because um, all the other categories, you know, like LGBTQ and women and children, they kind of came in later, but it was just important to assert that kind of color and race lens through that. 
And, you know, once it did, it became easier to really act and say, well, we have a diversity mandate. And though this is a risky project in many other ways, it would be great to be able to really, you know, to do what we say and prop up those diverse producers and diverse projects. And also talk about the authenticity of the voice and coming from that community. Um, so, you know, we'll have a lot of films about race, about um, social justice and racial issues, but, you know, how many of them are from the community? How many of them are made by black filmmakers or black producers or people of color? So um, I think we had to kind of force that conversation into every decision we made, you know, especially with TBS, but it was it was always heralded by this kind of operalization of saying that diversity came front and center. And I think without having said that, if we had not said that, for example, it's easy for it to just slip through the cracks. If you don't have a person of color there advocating for it, it's not going to really happen. I mean, you might have a white people that say, oh yeah, I really want it to happen, but unless they sort of set it in stone, it's very easy for it to just go away. Claire has certainly been a trailblazer in her commitment to care and working with documentary filmmakers in Pakistan and other global communities is commendable. She speaks of the need for intentionality, not only in what one speaks, but also in how one acts. It is unethical and unacceptable for someone to use the language of anti-racism and anti-oppression while still engaging in racist and oppressive acts. Too many of us have had this experience. As James Baldwin says, I can't believe what you say because I see what you do. Those of us who work on the industry side, as Claire says, have an ethical mandate and obligation to hire and seed power to BIPOCs, the disabled, LGBTQIA+, and those of us who don't live in regional centers of power. So, take a lesson from Claire and be bold in your approach to conquering these systemic inequities. Today's episode was hosted by Tony Bell and produced by Brunel Schubert. Music is by Sierra Thomas. 